why we left there, right, Jim? I don't, don't. Now, you people who complained about 95 degrees and hot, now, I know, you, I know, Big Mike, you're probably happy with this, aren't you? This dreary, icky weather, yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, we're glad to have you all here tonight. We're going to pick things up in uh, our Life of Messiah series. We are in paragraph 47 of Aerial Ministries Life of Messiah study looking at the life of Jesus using all four gospel accounts from a Jewish perspective. And we began this uh, particular story last week. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 tonight. Uh, it's going to be our primary. Uh, we began last week, uh, entitled our Bible study, uh, Through the Roof Faith. I think is what I called it, Through the Roof Faith. But Through the Roof, the story of the paralytic man who was uh, taken by four of his friends to, to Jesus, and they couldn't get in the house, so they broke the top of the roof open and lowered him down and uh, we saw how Jesus stops his teaching and with great intentionality uses a phrase that was used only uh, in the format that Jesus said it was only used in Leviticus chapter 4 through 6 when he said uh, his sins were forgiven him and um, Jesus used a phrase that only God would use Remember, the, we saw the context, the Sanhedrin had sent a large delegation of probably Sadducees, scribes, Pharisees to evaluate Jesus' ministry to see if it was a messianic movement of significance. And the first stage of their uh, plan was to observe. It's the same thing they did with John the Baptist. Uh, there would be no debating or no question. That was the rules. And then if the, they'd bring a report back to the Sanhedrin, and if they thought that it was a significant movement, then stage two would happen, which was the stage of interrogation. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this, but we're going to, like I said, use Mark tonight as our primary. So just in a way of review, remember what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2 and verse number 5. The Bible says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, um, we see... From a Jewish standpoint, this guy was sick with this palsy. And remember, from that standpoint, whenever you had this kind of disease, they looked at that as some you were under the judgment of God, that you had done something so egregious that God had given you this misfortune in your life. And uh, a lot of times, the people with these kind of problems were even uh, deemed what the rabbis would call outside the law, which meant they had basically been disinherited. All the blessings of being Jewish were removed from them. Now, it's clear that Jesus knows this man's heart. Verse number five tells us when he saw their faith, um, he knew, understood this, this man was, had, was seeking God, and we see no rejection. I was thinking of the guy, you know, I don't think he had the guy, the paralytically in there, and I don't know how he, I guess he could speak, so, he, you know, I don't think he's in there going, no, don't take me to Jesus, no, don't break up that roof, no, don't let me down. I don't, I don't think he was doing that, I think he was like, uh, I, I assume he was on board with the four of his friends, that seems to not be too great of an assumption there. Um, and uh, he eagerly accepted what Jesus was giving him. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious crowd, not so much. So with that in mind, we're going to go pick up the story here in verse number 6 and 7 of Mark chapter 2. The Bible says, But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man uh, thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Another reason I, when I first time I went through Life of Messiah, that stories like this that I'd read and studied a long time, I, I never quite understood why they reasoned this in their heart. Anything you know about the Pharisees, these were not people that were like, oh, I don't have a right to say anything. Oh, I got to maintain my quiet. These were the civil and spiritual leaders. They were typically arrogant, 
and they were above the people. Um, it always used to bug me. Why did they just reason in their heart? Why didn't they just say, hey, that is, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, or that's blasphemy? That's what you would see pretty much anywhere else where you find the Pharisees and when they approach some issue. They, they weren't shy to say what they felt, but yet here we find that they don't respond. And it wasn't until uh, uh, my, my Jewish teacher, Dr. Frutenbaum, I'm going through here and I'm going, well, that, that makes complete sense to me now. This is why we find they don't say anything because this is, they were there on their assignment and they knew it also makes sense that when Jesus said, son, thy sins be forgiven thee, that, that what Dr. Frutenbaum teaches us, that that phrase in the passive voice was only used in the Hebrew Bible in Leviticus 4 through 6, where a blood offering was required for the removal of sins. And then God would say, if you come bring a blood offering, then your sins are forgiven thee, passive voice. And Jesus says it that way. It makes perfect sense that they understood exactly what Jesus was saying and yet they say nothing. Now, I got to tell you, step one, you know, we were pretty hard on the, the old Pharisees and that, but you kind of got to admire their self-control. You ever wanted to say something to somebody when you knew you really shouldn't say it? How many times have you said something that you knew you shouldn't have said, but you were mad in the moment and you lost a measure of self-control and you said it? I think all of us can do that, and if you've been happily married, you've said it less than more, because if you say it more than less, you're going to have a less than happy marriage. Um, you, you, you know, you've, matter of fact, just in life with relationships, you know, just because you think something doesn't necessarily mean you have to, to say it. I admire their, their adherence to their rules. You've got to give them a little bit of credit there. Because Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, I think, you know, Chick-fil-A should be open on Sunday, something, you know, you know kind of culturally uh, argumentative. Jesus was making a statement that they, as we'll find out here in a minute, they, they looked at, and clearly was from their perspective, blasphemy. Jesus was saying, I don't know what worse thing a person, a human being could say in front of them than Jesus was saying, and yet they say nothing. And, you know, they're, they're, if, if you want to take some positive message from the Pharisees tonight, you know, do you have, our, our world today and our country today, I sure miss a day when, when America had a, can you call it a generally accepted, I know there's always heathen, there's always been losers in our country, but a generally accepted code of ethics. You remember a time when if you were a young person, you didn't smart off to somebody who was your elder, you just didn't. It was against protocol. You know, and now the, the, we just have no, none of that. And even inside the world of faith where, as you guys know my philosophy, I think many times, some, sometimes uh, we who are literalists in the scriptures and we believe Christians ought to live different, and I do, but we can sometimes become very rules-oriented, and you know I don't think that's the best way to have a walk with God, but that being said, the Bible clearly gives principles that we are to live by. And, you know, I, 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 I wish we as Christians, myself included, was as adherent to the principles that Jesus said to do and would be mindful of them as these Pharisees were with their list of rules because I know they wanted to say something. Now, the amazing thing about what they're thinking in, in verses 6 and 7 here, you know, uh, they say, who can forgive sins but God only? 
Is that a, is that a false statement? No, it's pretty, their theology is ultimately, they're right. <laughs> Only God can forgive sins, they, you know? But the problem with that conclusion is, if you accept that premise that only God can forgive sins, then Jesus is either a blasphemer or he's the Messiah God-man. See, it left them no wiggle room. Just like today when you talk to people, and I, I, and I, many times when I'm, you know, if you discuss with folks, sometimes some will say, well, I just think Jesus was a, was, was a good teacher, but he didn't, you know, all this stuff you Christians say, he didn't really say that he was dying for other people's sins, and he didn't really say he was God and all these other things. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you, you can't have it that way. Either Jesus was a raving lunatic, or he was who he said he was. It's, you, you take one of those positions, but the least logically defensible is the one in the middle that just says, oh, Jesus is some kind of good guy. Really, a good guy that says, unless you trust in him, you're going to hell? That's either true or it's not. And they were correct in their conclusion, and it forced them to a decision. And now, even though they didn't say it, Jesus knew it. Now, when I share with you what I just have, the whole context here, I imagine you... I, I don't know if Jesus, you know, used his, um, it says in verse 8, you know, that, um, in fact, let's read verse 8 and 9 as we move on in the story. It says, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. Um, they, were, they were thinking this, and Jesus knew it. Now, I was thinking to myself, did Jesus use a supernatural ability to read their minds? Maybe. You know, we know at times he, he's, he's the God man, he'd probably do that. But now that you, I show this to you, have you ever said anything in front of a group of people? I remember I used to sell, I used to be in curricula for uh, education. And my job was to go around, I had over a thousand schools in three states that I would visit on an annual basis, multiple times on an annual basis. And uh, oftentimes I would meet with entire faculties or maybe like the elementary fac uh, faculty. And I remember our, our, our uh, Abeka made a huge change in curricula. Uh, it's been some years ago now, but they went to even a more traditional approach in teaching kids to write. And it always had been that we had used ball and stick printing to teach early writing. And, and all of a sudden, one year we go for our annual meeting and they, they tell us, hey, we're going to change something up here and it's going to cause you guys some grief. I'm like, oh, what, what are you going to do? Uh, we, we, are, we have been teaching our kindergartners beginning at age four to write in cursive. And then, now we offered either option, but just the fact that we were doing this, and then I had to go meet with all these preschools and lower elementary age groups who were not happy about it. You know, um, now they, many of them come to find out, I always used to tell them, you ever put a little, if you, if you get a two-year-old, this is totally off topic, but I'm having fun here and I know you want to learn some educational stuff, give you something to think about. If you have a two-year-old, put your two-year-old with any kind of pencil or a crayon and put a piece of paper in front of them and let me ask you what type, watch what kind of movements they make. They do this stuff. They do. And if you check your American history, you will find True enough that our country for a long time taught kids to write script. While they read, they read ball and stick manuscript, that print was available, but they did this. And I don't know, you ever read them Civil War diaries and those guys could write in their penmanship? These are just regular soldiers in the field, and they, they just could write. And um, you say, why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal for Abeka because we taught phonics 
to, to teach reading. You sound out your words. You don't sight read, you sound them out. Well, the biggest step that a kid learns to, that before, on their path to reading is when they can understand that you can take one letter and one letter and put them together and blend that sound. You connect them to make a new sound. Well, guess what you do when you do cursive? You connect letters. any rate, all that to say, when I introduced my staff meeting with these faculty, these cr- groups of teachers all over Ohio and all over Indiana, and when I said certain things, let's just say it didn't take rocket science for me to understand that I knew what I was about to say. Many of them in that room were not going to like so I don't know if which one of these two things are here, but Jesus knows exactly, and obviously he's the God man, so he would have known anyway, but he uses, a, he, he asks them, he uses a, a rabbinic argument here. He first, he answers their question with a question. You know, y'all learn this, I hope by now. Whenever you read the Gospels, notice how often when Jesus is confronted with a, a challenge of a question, he responds by asking a question. I believe that's called the Socratic method, isn't it, Pastor Danny? I believe that, uh, based out of how Socrates, you know, but, uh, and it is very effective. It's a very, you say, it's not necessarily a trick thing per se. It's designed to get the person you're uh, having this discussion with to consider and think and, you know, ask a question, respond with a question. Um, also, Jesus uses another rabbinic approach, and, and Arnold calls it the light and heavy method. That's what they called it in that day. The rabbis taught that in the Old Testament, this approach was used at least 10 times. Now, this is one of the few occasions that in his unabridged deal, Dr. Frutenbaum doesn't cite rabbinic sources or tell which times in the Old Testament use this approach, because I would find that really fascinating. Um, where are the ones in the Old Testament? So once I tell you this, if you can figure one of them out, I'd be interested if you want to put it in the comments below. I'm sure y'all will go home and think about this. But um, basically, it just stated that it's good to teach from the easier to the harder. If you can do... do uh, um, well, Jesus says it this way. He says, whether it is easier in verse 9, is it easier to say saying thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, why is it easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee? Why is it easy to say? Notice the emphasis on say. Okay. I mean, let's be honest. I could sit up here tonight and say, Pastor Danny, in spite of your tons of sins, they're forgiven you. Now, please, Lord, this is just illustrative purposes. Okay. Don't, no lightning here. Um, you know, um, I could say that, and, and, I, and a lot of cults, that's exactly what they do. They say things that, that, how could you quantifiably prove that Danny's sins were now not forgiven him because I said so? I don't, I'd be very difficult to prove. There's externally be difficult. Then Jesus goes from the easier, and he says, he, in verse 9, he says, what is it easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven thee, or, verse 9, to say, arise, take up thy bed, and walk. That's the hard one. See it? Jesus proves he can do the easier by proving he can do the harder. It was a rabbinic approach of the day, uh, fascinating to me. That's why you get to verse 10 through 12. It says, Jesus goes on and says, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy. No, I think he just does this in the flow. I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose and took up 
the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Now, Jesus says it, and there's not, doesn't take five minutes. We don't find that the man passes out and falls into the arms of the deacon behind him. Um, you know, there's, there's not an offering taken. There's not credit card information given. Um, Jesus just says it, and it, it's done. And it, then Jesus, in verse 10, says that you may know that the Son of Man... Now, understand that it's a messianic title. You may remember where that comes from? Daniel. <laughs> Daniel knows this. Daniel 7. Is that in Daniel 9? Daniel 7? In the ancient of days. Doesn't Ezekiel use it a little bit as well? Is it used as a, as a messianic title? Ezekiel? I know Daniel's the primary one, but they, they, they viewed this as a, um, a messianic title. And as a messianic title, what do you think the, the, the emphasis is on using that title? Son of man. Doesn't it emphasize somewhat his humanity? I've, Dr. Rutenbaum mentions that he highlights his humanity after he had just shown his deity. He just showed everybody that I just did something that you all said only God can do because I said forgive his sins and then I did the harder. The man's up and walking and then he turns around and highlights his humanity. I, you know, if, if you ever discuss, and I've had the, uh, the privilege of time or two to, to spend extensive time with uh, Jewish people who were seeking, and one of the struggles they have that sometimes will lead them to seek is they, um, if you read the Old Testament and you're looking for all the prophecies concerning the, the Messiah, some of them clearly show a suffering humanly relatable Messiah and then other passages show a conquering king divine more highlighted Messiah and how do you make both of those things work and depending on which rabbi you read there's differing you know something there's more than one Messiah there's different so that's how they handle there's different ways that the, the Jewish rabbis have handled it but bottom line is Jesus is showing them I think he's highlighting here the God man structure and he shows it he heals this paralytic, shows, in fact, he can do the harder, to thus prove the easier. Now, it's interesting. All three gospel writers show this dynamic um, of the God-man thing. That's one thing all three accounts have in common. And the scribes and Pharisees couldn't say much. I don't know what they would have said anyway. It would have been interesting if they could have spoke. Well, how would they, how would they you, know, you know, what are you going to say about this? This guy is... You know, taking up his bed. You know, I don't know if he was folding his, his little blanket and maybe it was a fold-up cot. I don't know. You know, I don't know, tidying up his little area and off the little guy marches. Now, of course, the house is full of people, so a lot of people also saw this. It wasn't like they could say, well, no, it didn't happen that way. There was, this, I don't know what they said. But I, again, see Jesus here graciously reaching them and proving to them on a, on a level they clearly would have understood and yet all the while he's shown them grace, they re are rejecting him. And I suppose every one of us here at time in our life have walked that path, you know. Um, some of us longer than others. I mean, I came to faith in Christ when I was a seven-year-old little kid. Um, you know, some of you, like Pastor Danny, took a little longer in life uh, to get there. And, um, you know, we've all, we've all 
at times taken uh, the grace of God for, adva- for granted. But I was thinking to myself, these Pharisees that were there, the ones that were there specifically on behest of the Sanhedrin, they had to walk. Remember, we saw it said it was like a three-day, three to four-day walk from Capernaum here back to Jerusalem. Well, they had to go back and report, right? Can you imagine what they would, the discussion, don't you wish you could have been a fly on the wall in their little caravan on their way back to Jerusalem? <laughs> they were going, all right, what are we going to say about this? <laughs> How are we going to explain this one? You know, now, of course, we know by, you know, we know the rest of the story. We know when they get back there, they're going to report to the Sanhedrin that, yes, Jesus is claiming messianic claims, and yes, it is a significant movement. And as we'll see as we move forward in the life of Messiah, we will see the second stage of, of their investigation, which does involve them questioning what he's doing. And we will see that uh, in a few paragraphs. Let's say we're in paragraph 47. Was it paragraph 61, I think? I think so. We're, we're 10 paragraphs, so we'll, we'll be getting there. But in closing tonight, and I thought I'd get done early, uh, which aren't you all happy with that? Um, you know, I... I wondered what happened to the healed man and his friends. You know, there are some people in some of the commentaries I read that even discussed, you know, Jesus just seems to blatantly forgive this man's sins. Did he even ask? Is there any, is it recorded in here at all? Did he even ask for his sins to be forgiven? Was this man, does this mean he was saved? I I think there are some, uh, one of the commentaries mentioned another commentary, a a liberal commentary that utilized this passage as a a, a somewhat of a foundation uh, for universalism, Pastor Danny, uh, which universalism means that God, since Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world, God can just let everybody into heaven. And, And they would, some of them use this saying, this guy just got lowered down and Jesus said, your sins are absolved. Well, why couldn't God just do that for everybody? Then everybody goes to heaven. Um, any thoughts on that? Do you think this guy, is this a good salvation story? Or It's interesting, his four friends, what happened to them? You know, uh, not, not much is said. Any thoughts on that? Do you think this guy was saved? If so, how? And uh, what about his four friends? Or why, why don't we get any more information? Does it, does it strike you as interesting that the first part of the whole story is about these one guy, his four friends, he comes down, Jesus heals him, and then it's pretty much poof. Anybody? Curious. Okay, the four guys that brought him were already saved? Uh, maybe. I, that, um, I think, Mike, to, if I, your position, I think is bolstered by the fact that in verse 5, it says when Jesus saw their faith. Now we saw last time most Greek nerds, like, you know, guys that know Greek way better than I do, believe that the antecedent there when he saw their faith was in reference to the four men carrying him. So that, that would seem to make sense. Anybody else? Jason? You're talking about the paralytic guy. Okay. Hmm. 
That's an interesting. Jason saying that maybe on their way there, this guy, maybe he had some kind of doubts and his four friends said, listen, we believe this is the Messiah. He can heal you. And obviously their actions if, would at least, you know. Yep. And I, like I said earlier, I don't think if this guy would have been adamant that he wanted nothing to do with Jesus, you know, I just don't, can't see these guys you know, lowering him down with the guy going, no, no, get him away from me. I don't want that guy, you know. Um, I, I think when you've been a paralytic your whole life and four of your closest friends, and I'll tell you, one of the things that I've always thought about this paralytic is um, he had four people that really cared about him. And you say, well, it's no big deal. You don't understand if you bring it into the Jewish context of that time, he was considered outside the law. He was considered a great sinner. So a lot of people would reject people like that because it was, you, you know, like, they, oh, you, don't, you hang around with sinners. It, it was frowned upon to hang around with other sinners. And yet this guy, in spite of whether it was a disease, which I think it was probably more disease than an injury, but either way, he, he had this thing, but somehow he maintained relationships enough that he must have, I don't know if he did stuff before, I don't know how, but he had four people that cared enough about him to persevere enough to go down, you know, and then climb up and let, tear up the roof of some, somebody's house and let, lower him down. And so I think it's pretty interesting. But, um, but none of the three accounts answer some of these questions that I think in normal storytelling we would include. Like, oh, here's what happens, the rest of the story. No, the, the rest of the story is he goes home and everybody was amazed and we never saw it on this fashion. Everybody in the crowd understood what Jesus was saying as well, that he, had the, he, he was divine, that he could forgive sins, and then he proved it by raising this guy. But the answer to the question is significant, though, that I want you to see because this is something that many times is an issue, especially, I think, in the gospel accounts. Um, I guess I would ask you this. Would this story be a wonderful story to use in discerning your doctrine of salvation? If you were saying, I want to figure out how someone goes to heaven, and the, what I'm going to use to support my how I know I'm going to heaven is this story. Okay, eternal life is never really mentioned in there other than forgiving of sins in some way had some anti, but you're right, Mike. Anybody else? Pastor Danny shaking his head. How so, sir? Okay. All right. The, the, we're still in the, in the dispensation of law at, at, at this point. That's also very accurate. Anybody else? Jerry? Yeah. Well, Jerry brings a very good question. Uh, I, I can see it. That Jesus was moved, Jerry's saying Jesus was moved by the faith of these other men upon him. Now, again, I don't know how much theology, doctrine-wise, I'd want to develop on this, but I, I would think you could certainly walk away with, do you think... Our faith in what God can do can impact somebody else. You know, I, 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 I'd like to think it does. Otherwise, what is prayer anyway? But 
uh, yeah, that's, you know, sometimes we want to just give up on somebody and say, well, they're, they're a hopeless case, you know. <laughs> Jerry's got an interesting thought. He said if, he thinks that the paralytic man would have paid those guys to get him there. Maybe he wouldn't have even gotten healed. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. That's why I like asking these questions if you're wondering because sometimes, you know, I miss my man Rick. Many of you remember Rick. He's with the Lord now, so he's probably he's getting direct, I guess. But um, Rick would ask, that, that sounds like a Rick question, which is a, that's a pretty good insight, Jerry. I don't have an answer. I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, Rob? Right, but that's his personal faith. Jerry's saying Jesus says he saw the faith of his four friends and then he did something. And, and I, I think there's something to that. I, I, you know, I think maybe we could, you could write a sermon that, you know, who, what, what paralytic are you carrying? You know, I, it, maybe you could make the application, I probably would, you know, that I'm thankful that God didn't tell one guy hey, get you a litter stretcher and pull him all the way by yourself and lower him down by yourself because unless you're Big Mike lowering a little guy like me, if it was Big Mike that was a paralytic, you're in trouble, buddy. You're staying still on the ground floor you're, if I was the only guy. Aren't you glad that typically, and I find this to be true, that, that when God is working in the life of somebody, maybe a four-to-one ratio is pretty good. Um, and most Christians, you know, I would say, does there anybody in your life that's, that's an unbeliever that you interact with? Anybody? I think as Christians, there should be somebody that, that you're, you're the point person, or at least you're carrying one of the ledges of the, of the litter. Now, I understand this guy wasn't fighting it. I think, Jerry, I think you and I would agree he, he, he was okay with coming. I'm not talking, there are some, if you've got relatives that are hard, and every time you bring up the church, they get, you know, you have a responsibility to tell them once. You do not have a responsibility to, you know, harp on them and nag at them. The Holy Spirit will do that. <laughs> much better than you do um, or I can do but that, that's, that's great um, I, I would just tell you in, in closing I, I think one of the things that I want you to make sure you don't lose sight of as we go through all the life of Messiah and we go through these different stories we can see elements of, of the salvation plan in here clearly the blood atonement that Leviticus was a picture of that Jesus would die and shed his blood and the faith element they're, they're, they're all there but Remember that the gospel accounts are all written very thematically and they're not written from a Western linear mindset. The goal of the writer was not to tell you the whole life of the paralytic or what happened to the four guys after. The point of the story <laughs> was to show that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah and proved it. That's what the author wants the reader to understand. And sometimes when it comes to those, these stories that the gospel account gives, and we're going to get into parables. By the way, I'll throw one little, one little throw out there. Has anybody seen Jesus even to this point? And we've been in Life of Messiah now for, I don't know, a year? Probably studying. We're in paragraph 47. Is, has Jesus used a parable at, at all? No. Think about that. No, I'll explain that later. You have to stay around for several more paragraphs before I explain that. I'll leave that one hanging out there, but glad you all tuned in tonight. Interesting study. Uh, I hope that you are carrying somebody uh, to Jesus and uh, are involved in faithfully uh, serving the Lord. So uh, we're going to close tonight in a word of prayer. We'll see you all, Lord willing, on uh, Sunday. Tune in for our morning uh, 
service. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the teaching of your word tonight. Uh, thank you for uh, how clearly you did show and prove that you are the Messiah. We're thankful that our sins can be uh, not only covered, but can be washed away because of your blood. Lord, I pray that as we live out our life, we live a life of faith. God, help us to impact those around us um, that you've put us in contact with. And um, Lord, I pray that our faith would be uh, uh, powerful enough and effective enough to bring someone to a place where they recognize and experience your forgiveness. Bless everyone that's here tonight. Bless those who are out tonight due to sickness and many who others who are traveling. Give them safety on the roads. In Jesus' name, amen. See y'all later. God bless you. Over and out. Michael, Mike, Michael J.